Welcome to The Radical Therapist. We are now at episode number 109, and I am Chris Hoff, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We have a great one for you today. It's uh, We're covering a lot of different topics with the legendary Tom Strong from the University of Calgary, and just he's just such a prolific writer, researcher on lots of different topics that I think are going to really interest the Radical Therapist community. And uh, I just, you know, just covers a lot of different, it's one of those heady ones I really like. We even get to talk about Bruno Latour. If you've been a listener to The Radical Therapist or follow me on any of my socials, you know that I'm a big stan of uh, Bruno Latour, who unfortunately recently passed away. But uh, just one of those guys, I think, uh, who still is going to have a lot of influence in our field eventually, and already is, I think, in some ways. And uh, just, yeah, just, uh, I think you're going to really like this conversation. Uh, really excited to have Tom on the show before we get there. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements. If, if you could, a favor to ask, just, uh, rate and review the show where you're listening. And if you're on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, if you could give us a rating and a review, that's how I understand people, uh, find us. It would be appreciated if you could do that for us. And, you know, we're coming into the new year and, uh, you know, I'm, I just want to just kind of let people know that I'll be uh, presenting at the International Family Therapy Association Conference in Malaga, Spain in March on some of my ideas around featuring the present uh, and would love to hang out with any of you that might be going to that event. Uh, if you are, reach out to me and uh, let's uh, hang out at the International Family Therapy Association Conference in Malaga, Spain in March. It'd be fun to do that. Uh, so yeah, if you're going to do that, let me know. Um, okay, uh, that's it for that. And so let's get to Tom. If you don't know who Tom is, uh, there might be a few of you. Uh, Tom Strong is a professor and counselor educator who recently retired from the University of Calgary to Duncan, British Columbia. He writes on the, uh, writes a lot on the collaborative critical and practical potentials of discursive approaches to psychotherapy, and most recently on concept critique and development, particularly with respect to therapy and research, and of course, critical mental health. Among Tom's books are Medicalizing Counseling, Issues and Tensions, Patterns in Interpersonal Interactions, co-edited with Carl Tom, Sally St. George, and Dan Wolf, and Social Constructionism, Sources and Stirrings in Theory and Practice, co-authored with Andy Locke, and finally, Furthering Talk with David Paré. Uh, check out all that stuff. So without further ado, let's chat with Tom. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Great to be here, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for making the time. I've, I've known of your work for quite a while. I'm, I'm very uh, inspired by your prolific writing as well <laughs> on, a, on across a wide range of topics. And so I always find that interesting. I've seen you present. I've, I've been in, uh, you know, conferences in Canada. I think it, one of the the narrative therapy conferences in Vancouver one year, I saw you present, uh, I think. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's nice to be able to kind of sit down with you uh, and, and talk to you about your wide ranging background. And I, I guess before we get rolling in some of the many topics that you kind of cover or are interested in, I'm, I'm wondering if we could start by sharing or having you share about with us about your path and your professional ba background and how did you come inter become interested in counseling? Um, yeah, I mean, I was the guy who was nominated to be most successful in business when I graduated from high school. And uh, I ended up doing a major turn when I got involved in working with street kids. And that would have been up in Prince Rupert, which is really close to where the Alaska Panhandle is. And um what happened there was I was working with kids who were on probation and one of the people I worked with said, you know what, we're going to start a new alternate school and we would love to have you be the person that helps us get it going. But I had to go back and get a teacher's degree to do that, um, which was here in BC. It was a one year degree and I was able to go off, come back and basically get involved in helping roles from that point onwards um, with kids. Um, 
And literally, I was one of those kind of people where they said, um, oh, you can talk to kids. And then the next thing I know out of the alternate school, I'm a guidance counselor in a high school. You know, And um, this was before I had any training as a counselor. Mm. <laughs> so um, one of my interests has uh, been what it's like to go in and do the training because I had to get uh, courses in order to get accepted into a master's program. And that was my first experience of having to script my talk. And I think I've always had a resentment against that ever since uh, I was introduced to that idea that somehow um, I would need to be able to use these Rogerian um, kind of uh, whatever sentence stems and all of that that became almost the cornerstone of every counselor's training. And um, it got me initially into a way of thinking that I would imagine some of your um, listeners would um, know about, which is this whole idea that somehow with my expert communication, I was going to be able to do the kind of help that I needed to do. And it got even more crystallized that way of thinking um, by getting exposed to Milton Erickson. Hmm. And I'm doing a bit of a back kind of grounded here in a way to kind of give you uh, why I did a big reverse turn later. <laughs> right. And um, the idea of being able to do and think right as a helper um, was, I think, the kind of pinnacle of what modern psychological and psychotherapy thinking was about. Lots of it's still around that thinking, I think. I, yeah, I agree. And um, so I went into my master's degree having that kind of pull. Uh, you know, I had neuro-linguistic programming training. I had, I had a number of things that said, if you say this at this time, the client is somehow compelled to do what they're supposed to do, whatever that is, mm -hmm. or they're being resistant or whatever kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And... Um, what I found as I went into my graduate training was more and more a, a sense that no, it was more than just getting it right. There was actually something relational that um, could never be scripted. And that um, it was only really when I was about almost finished my doctorate um, where I had been exposed to a lot of the family therapy um, models like the Mental Research Institute and, you know, the early constructivists um, that I began getting exposed to what now I would call social constructionist theory. Mm -hmm. And that was then a huge deep dive. That all happened or almost all happened after I had my PhD was out practicing. And um, so, yeah, I, I could get right into it if you want. <laughs> yeah, but. I was going to, well, that was kind of my next question is um, yeah. maybe sharing a bit about your process of how you did become interested in social constructionist ideas or discursive practice. And of course, uh, you've always had a, the writing that I'm familiar with, a critical eye when it comes yeah. to therapy. I'm wondering how that all came to be. Well, I would say that I'm a product of the internet. And um, back in probably the early to mid 90s, uh, I was making connections on different listservs um, that were happening. And um, that included people who were involved in narrative therapy. Um, I would have seen uh, Mike White the first time, probably about 1990. And um, Stephen Madigan, who you know, uh, mm -hmm. had had brought Mike White into Vancouver, and I was practicing up in the north of British Columbia then, in a place called Smithers, um, which is where that glacier is, by the way. <laughs> um, and um, like a lot of people, the kinds of questions that narrative people were asking and the kinds of 
questions, let's say solution-focused people were asking at the time, Harleen Anderson, mm -hmm. all of that made initially no sense to me. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, you know, in a real Heideggerian sense, it was like literally falling out of my ontology, my understanding of reality and what it meant to really make sense of what practice was about. And um, it was a good kind of anxiety, and that's mm -hmm. how Heidegger would talk about it. But what it did was it got me looking at the reference section to uh, many of the key books of the time. And it got me really torqued. Um, I was working as a, a public mental health psychologist um, back in those years. And uh, what I got involved in was really being torqued about the DSM that was coming in at the time, the DSM-4. <laughs> seemed like a long, long time ago. And um, that was where the critique part really started to make a lot of sense. Like, after you read, like, Foucault's Madness and Civilization, you're left with these big questions, like, why in this historical moment do we construct things the way we do when it comes to illness? You know, or when it comes, and I don't want to use that word illness in a way that I want to do that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, meanwhile, were these online connections. And um, one of them was a guy named Andy Locke who passed away last year. And Andy was um, a very interesting guy for um, setting up was the first real critical psychology program down in the South Pacific. And um, Andy had uh, worked with John Schotter and had been involved with the people at the Loughborough group of um, what now is known as discursive psychology. And he brought that critical perspective to looking at language uh, acquisition. Hmm. And um, so, I don't know, through a lot of different correspondence, I got involved with Andy, um, got involved in a, a number of groups. One was a Bakhtin group um, that had a number of very interesting participants in that. Um, but these were all people who liked the ideas that um, they could see glimmers of in their therapy. And I really want to acknowledge the narrative therapy is very um resourcefully used ideas, you know, like Foucault, um, and, uh, you know, drawing from the anthropologists who went postmodern and that kind of thing. I, I think all of that was really useful. And it gave a particular direction to um, practice that um, I still use. Hmm. But I would say, as I read more, as I got more involved with other forms of therapy, um, as I began to look at, you know, other post-structuralist um, theorists, and, I don't know, idea people, I guess I would call them. They were theory in the normal sense. Right, right. Um, then a whole bunch of other ideas began to make sense. And um, the one in particular that I would say many people who would regard themselves as social constructionists don't get and really need to get in my books is uh, Harold Garfinkel's work on methodology. Hmm. And that is uh, underpins a lot of the work you would find in people like Bruno Latour, um, a lot of the what I would call microethnography approaches to research. Mm -hmm. And um, even, you know, if you want to look at narrative practice theory, uh, you know, I don't know how much Greg Guberman, Holstein and people like that, mm -hmm. but um, the whole idea that um, what we're doing often happens at a taken for granted tacit level that um, for the most part, we're held accountable to. Mm. And, and it's a very complicated theory in one level to get into. And yet, once I got into it, it was like a whole world opened up to me, um, a version of which I touched down on in ways that I think was perhaps more nerdy than I wanted to get. Um, 
about conversation analysis and and this is where the discursive stuff uh, would come in yeah and that's what and, I, yeah go ahead yeah well, I was going to add, well, you, a lot of your work is around the discursive, a lot of your research, uh, you, you write a lot about discursive practice, and I'm, I'm wondering if you, for our audience, can you share about that and why it's important? Right. Um, I think that this is what I was slow to coming to when I first got exposed to narrative. Um, I would still argue that many people who identify as constructionist practice miss this very micro interactional piece that i mean if you go right back in family therapy um you'll notice was always there um it was there in the the work of the bateson team um the classic book um pragmatics human communication was one that looked very closely at micro interaction but many therapists aren't interested in getting that micro in their look they're more interested in in the, what their practices are supposed to do and not how, necessarily how they play out in the immediacies of using them. Mm-hmm. And that was where I got very interested in the conversation analysis and what I would call more the kind of micro discursive elements of practice. Now, I don't for a moment overlook how important the macro discursive elements are. And, you know, to be clear, I think that there are big picture discourses that are always there informing our bottom line understandings of things and that those in practice can be explored and unpacked the way a narrative therapist might do that. Mm-hmm. But I also really want to go to the place that John Schroeder really drove home for me, which is this emergent, micro-interactional, dialogic kind of thing that happens as people talk. Mm -hmm. And what is it that we're doing in our responding to each other? Yeah, 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 and I'm wondering, uh, just kind of maybe a training question, because a lot of our listeners are folks that are, are early in, you know, either in graduate school or post-grad and kind of doing it. I'm wondering, you know, somebody that wants to get more micro, for example, right. I mean, is it about doing transcript work or, I mean, what's your recommendation about how to, you know, if you're not in a kind of a research setting, for example, how, how can you expand your micro skills? Well, the easiest version is to do a decentering of ourselves as therapists and to be more interested in what clients do with what we do. That would be, I mean, the the emergent part is I don't know exactly how somebody else is going to interpret and respond to me. And by the way, I think interpret and respond are the same thing. And that is a whole other piece of it. But to go another level, if people wanted to get very interested, I would suggest they begin by looking at videotapes of the work really closely. Right, right. Not for their performance or the client's responses to them and what they do in response to those responses, etc. That's the dialogic piece. Wonderful. Okay, and I, I'm a big fan of video, video, and even transcript work. But yeah. yeah, we do at California Family Institute. We're always showing video, and and from that perspective. So I appreciate you saying that. It makes me feel like we're doing something right. So, right. Um, so I have a question. You, you know, you, your research. Before we get into some of the more specifics of your research, your research has covered a lot of territory in your career, and. I guess I'm, I'm wondering what's interesting you most these days. What's happening in the field that you find inspiring or uh, interesting or exciting? What's going on? Well, um, yeah, thanks for that question. <laughs> and, of course, you are <laughs> uh, you alluded earlier to how I have diverse interests. And I think over my kind of academic career, you know, once I got a taste for this stuff that we've been talking about, early in my practice and then my academic career, I wanted to build a cosmology, if that makes any sense. And um, what I mean by that is I wanted ideas on a big picture and small picture level that would somehow uh, be 
connected enough that I would be able to develop a kind of appreciation for how the macro and the micro came together. And I, I'm not looking for one of like Ken Wilber's explanations of things or anything like that. I'm more interested in how my cosmology attunes me to the unfamiliar and how it enables me to question the familiar. Hmm. So I want it to do both things. I want it to be able to help me recognize when I get over-patterned, and that's what I mean by familiar. Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to be able to go, oh, what was here I am reproducing this thing that I don't necessarily want, you know, in my practice, in my life, all of that. And how is it that I can look at that in a micro way and catch what it is I'm doing that I'm producing that I don't like, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And I don't mean I'm unilaterally doing that. It's just that what I'm caught up in with other people. I have to look at my part in that interaction, what I can do differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Okay. So moving into kind of some of the things that you've written about, worked on and that kind of thing. I, Let's start with like addiction. I know a lot of folks are probably working uh, with folks that are struggling with substance misuse. And you recently co-edited a book with Tanya Mudri on models of psychotherapy and mental health. Well, this I'm going to start with this. Actually, I'll, I'll move to addiction next. But uh, wrote a this was recent. Co-edited a book with Tanya Mudri on models of psychotherapy and mental health that focused on the tension between treatment integrity approach favored by implementation scientists. And I hope people understand. And a client responsive approach is advocated by researchers who look at common factors unaccounted for by models. And so you were kind of looking at, you know, these the evidence based as opposed to maybe the common factors research. And where where do you stand on therapy models and their usefulness and effectiveness? And do you have a favorite? You you are kind of speaking to it, your way of working. But do you have a favorite way of working or? You know, what do you, what do you, where, do you, where do you fall on the model thing, since that still seems to drive our field? Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, in a way, your question goes back to the dilemma I was building towards as a grad, stu uh, grad student. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know the correct way to intervene. And then I realized, wait a minute, <laughs> I could... You know, what does the, the medical people say? Uh, the surgery was a success, but the patient died, you know, um, that kind of thinking, you know. I didn't want to be using models with the kind of integrity that implementation scientists are looking for. They have a belief that the model itself, used correctly, is going to produce results. Mm -hmm. They are not looking at what's occurring in therapy as being a co constructive co-interpretive process. And with that comes the whole thing about responsiveness. And that's what I mean by dialogic. Mm -hmm. um, that responsiveness is in how are they responding to my responding? How am I responding back? You know, all of that kind of way of thinking. Mm -hmm. What that means when it comes to models is I see them as sources of resources. <laughs> and ideas and practices I might use that um, at worst in one way of thinking is you need to stay very faithful to the script of cognitive therapy right, or right. narrative therapy or whatever. And in order to do the practice properly, correctly, but you can lose your client very quickly doing that. And so I would imagine for those uh, listeners who are um, students right now, that is one of the great dilemmas they have is what does it mean to satisfy their supervisor? Right. <laughs> They're doing their practice right uh, and balancing their relationship in the moment with their client at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the mistakes that happens with evidence-based therapy is the idea that it has to be done by the book you know, uh, or by the manual, by the, yeah. and the idea that you make local little adjustments, um, Harold Garfinkel would call them ad hoc kind of arrangements um, to do it ad hoc, you know, improvised to some extent. Um, 
there are ways to be, you know, there are many ways to do externalizing questions. Mm-hmm. And the idea that they would have to only come from the sentence stems of what Michael White had to say or whatever would narrow it too down for me. Um, I would rather it be something that is regarded as a kind of way of looking at how problems getting you know brought into a person's thinking and acting hmm. and how our conversations help to put the origins of those ideas back out there to be talked about. Wonderful. Where do you fall in the common factors research? What are, you, what are your thoughts about? Uh, the what, research? Well, yeah, like common factors uh, or just what, what are your oh, thoughts? Oh, well, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Um, you know, that the therapeutic relationship is, uh, count, you know, that kind yeah, of thing. You, you got me going in a number of different directions <laughs> yeah. how I respond. Um, so one version of it would be that um, the relationship matters deeply and how we work on um, how we customize our work with the clients that we work with so that we're working on their goals, um, incorporating their understandings and values into where we're going, how in the immediacies of our talking, um, we are building relationship as we extend what should be a joint project Um now, let me counterpose that with another view of what we're talking about. The view that I'm I'm more concerned about is the idea that um, I, in a detached way, can do all of these empathic things that the textbooks say I'm supposed to do, that uh, I hear the client's goal, and it's now my job to direct the client where the client needs to go, um, all of that kind of thinking, I think, is hugely problematic in my books. Mm. And um, what it does is it sort of presumes some roles that fall short of what I would call co, co-constructing, co-interpreting, co-developing, co-producing results. And uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, okay, getting to addiction now. You you did recent. Uh, you have a recent paper you co-authored. Titled Doing Recovery Work Together, Clients and Counselors, Social Discursive and Institutional Practice that offers new ways of working with addiction concerns. And we're always looking for new ways of working. I wonder if you can kind of share your thoughts about that, your approach, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, So um, what is interesting for me about that particular uh, paper, and and it comes out of the work of Tanya Mudri and... um, and Tanya got interested in social practice theory. And what social practice theory is very related to what I was mentioning about Harold Garfinkel, this idea that the the micro interactions are what, in a sense, stabilize our sense of what is familiar, even if that familiar is unwanted, okay? So the idea that there would be, um, and then there's a whole bunch of other theoretical layers that I would be adding to what um, goes into social practice theory. Um, and I don't know how nerdy to get here, but I mean, I could, I, I, I would bring in the idea that uh, Wittgenstein's notion of language came as a kind of recurring almost network of how things all develop in a familiar interactive kind of way so that there becomes this unquestioned closed loop of sorts. Mm. And inside that loop would then be these micro interactions that hold it all together. And there will be some of those micro interactions that are more important than others. And our interest in looking at social practice theory was to try to get to what would be a hinge practice and what would be one of the places where if you, and it almost sounds strategic in the way that um, you might have associated with people at the Mental Research Institute in their use of cybernetics, but um, there would be places in the um, almost ecology or network of how an addiction gets done by the person 
that really play a role in helping um, almost disrupt how that pattern keeps occurring. And the big part of what we're trying to get at it in that paper in, in Tanya's um, dissertation, which I'd encourage people to have a look at, um, was the idea that everything was linked in a kind of network and that the idea is to help the network develop in a slightly different manner by going to particular hinge practices that in a sense are integral to the recurrence of that habit mm. or that loop. Mm. And I think the where a lot of people go initially with that kind of thinking is they think it's a one-off habit, you know, but we're talking about more as that having a, a, a kind of network inertia that people do and there's a sense of knowing what comes next and, and getting locked into a familiar kind of inertia of sorts. Hmm. Um, and we wanted to be able to find practices that would help people um, disrupt where it is that things hung together around what I was calling a hinge practice. Yeah, yeah. I like that term. And and speaking of networks, uh, you brought up Bruno Latour earlier, who's been a big influence on me. And as a Latourian, I, yeah. I'm quite interested in your work, Tanya, again, on yeah. you You did some work on mapping human and non-human elements. And I'm thinking of Bruno right. Latour's actor network theory. And, right. Uh, but you did it in a clinical way. And I'm not aware of work like this. It was interesting to discover this, that you were kind of taking that on. And I, I'm wondering, how did you become interested? What did you find? And and you also referenced Adele Clark. And I'm not familiar yeah. with Adele Clark. But. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, so let me start with Adele, and I'm going to go big picture and then burrow in on Adele. But um, one of my things that I write about occasionally is the idea that I think there are things that were happening in the qualitative research world that social constructionist therapists could learn from. And I've had this kind of going on in my head for years. Um, it, it It is much like what I said about um, looking at discursive interaction, maybe only with a videotape. But until I had encountered looking at conversation analysis, Jerry Gale's work in that area, um, I would have um, probably not thought that research was anything more than giving me findings to work with. What I got by going into methods, and I'm getting to Dell's work here in a sec, but what I found is many of the methods of inquiry that are part of qualitative research methods give us useful techniques or practices as therapists. So there's a whole tradition in qualitative research of action research. Mm -hmm. Action research and therapy in my books are almost the same thing. And you might, you know, you're literally getting together around a question that concerns the people that you're trying to be helpful to. You're developing methods to address that question. And your job is not just to understand it, it's to change what you're doing as you develop understanding. Now, that is big backdrop for then getting to Adele Clark. And Adele Clark um, is somebody who uh, was involved in early grounded theory. And for those people who know grounded theory, um, they will think about uh, Strauss and Belize um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Strauss, right? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, Adele Clark's supervisor was um, Anselm Strauss. And he was uh, always from the the group of uh, people that you might call symbolic interactionists, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which to me um, has everything to do with um, social constructionist theory. Um, there's a whole pragmatic tradition with people like George Herbert Mead, and um, you know it goes way back. Um, and and basically, those were people who were always interested in how knowledge was constructed and meaning is constructed in interaction. Bring it down to where we are with grounded theory. And grounded 
theory was initially a response to the positivist psychology of um, you know, quantitative methods back in the 60s. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to go and discover from the interview informants their experience and then write it up in a way that initially was quite positivist. And by that, I mean predictable and done in the usual hypothesis testing ways that a lot of people would think about. And Strauss was this symbolic interactionist who got more interested in the idea of uh, kind of uh, meaning and provinces of meaning in the Alfred Schutz sense. Um, and that got Adele Clark into Foucault and then ultimately into a lot of the post-structuralists. And um, rather than think the grounded theory was coming up with the positive theory of how experience actually was or how things actually happened, um, Adele Clark, for her work, chose to look at what happened when the morning after pill was introduced to America. And the reason why she wanted to do that was to look at how uh, meaning associated with the introduction of that pill would be more, would involve more than one discourse, more than one perspective, bringing together, uh, you know, that idea of um, how knowledge is constructed in diverse ways, and then looking at, at how there are literally, like you would see in the political sphere today, um, different camps taking up different positions. Now, that then got us looking at, so we were talking a bit earlier about material stuff, and I, you know, what some people nowadays call social material, where I would say the morning after pill is a golden example of what we mean by that because here is something material that literally changes how we experience things and at a biological level okay mm -hmm. so what does it mean then to start looking at these competing um discourse communities when it comes to a development and the idea that we're looking at single worlds and stuff like that as, you know, there's only one way to understand things. That is exactly the piece that Adele's work unpacked in um, uh, going into what she calls situational analysis. Mm. And her interest was in trying to map in a fluid way how um, situations are contested. Um what kinds of influences are important in the contest, um, and then to look at how, um, for example, uh, ways in which decisions might get made based on you know interlocking, intersecting kinds of uh, differences that people might take up, and um, that got me into thinking more and more about the whole contested nature of what it means to live everyday life, which has always been a big part of a lot of different social constructionist um, work, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you know Michelle de Certeau's work mm -hmm. and, you know, um, but I got really interested in this idea that some of it could be mapped and that the maps themselves could be resource tools in working with clients. What are the influences on what, you know, um, what they are wanting to do and the understandings that they bring and how can you bring out that sense contest over meaning where basically there may have been early foreclosure on a singular meaning, like this is the way things really are kind of deal, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, we have to, uh, you know, come up with some way of acting from meaning. And as a post-structuralist, to me, that is always more social and social material involvement. Um, but uh, the hard part is, how do you open up meaning where it hasn't been questioned before? And I thought the maps were very useful in getting at that. Mm -hmm. And also getting at 
where people are acting in these micro ways, partly because of the influence of the macro. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking about the social material and how more and more, um, well, you know, maybe we haven't accounted for it, but it's starting to be accounted for in the work. I, yeah. Okay. Um, I'll give you another example. Yeah. Um, a, a master's student that worked with me, um, oh God, I'm going to blank on her name. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start and then maybe her name will come and I really apologize if yeah. she's going to listen to this, but um uh, uh, what she was looking at was the way in which cell phone use became incorporated into everyday activity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, the thing that really interested me about the work was her research was the degree to which people would even have anxiety when they're separated from their phones. Mm -hmm. um, the degree to which phones would detour conversations that were happening in the immediate sense with people, yeah. you know, all of that. And to me, that's just another example of where it is that uh, the material becomes interwoven with how we do our lives. Yeah, you have me thinking about a time I was, I was working with a couple and it was a heterosexual couple and the male partner put his phone down face down. And that created the whole conversation for the rest of the session, right? Right. That act of putting the phone, and you know, so that was all. You have me thinking. That's kind of micro, but the, the meaning that got made, both macro right. about that, about the right. way, and the, and the micro in that. So yeah. Well, um, to go back to Tanya for a moment, when her her research about gambling, um, she was uh, one of the people that she interviewed a hinge practice was very social material. It was going to the uh, ATM and getting money. Mm. And that would be the very, one of the key parts to queued up all the rest of what that practice was about. Mm. So the moment you start to make that, like turning the phone upside down, you know, is the moment the practice becomes harder to continue in a network way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. I mean, I would love to see more and more of that and how that's going to start coming out. A um, couple more questions for you. Uh, you've also written critically about neuroscience and mental health, and this is interesting to me, and, I, and what it is afforded and what's constrained by its use. And I think, you know, for our audience, what are your thoughts about this growing influence on our field? Yeah, I mean, um, I remember my colleague, Hank Stem, who used to be the editor of Theory and Psychology, he described neuroscience as an er discourse, you are discourse, and that, you know, one of many that have been in psychology that, you know, here is the thing that now explains everything right. kind of deal. Right, and right, right. Um, I think that to me, the idea that neuroscience offers evidence of something is great. And I think that there are ways to be able to say um, it is a, a really useful thing to know that certain parts of the brain are engaged when we do certain kinds of activities. And that by engaging in more of those activities, we might make that part of our brain function in the way that maybe might enable us to do things that right now we can't. I think all of that is great. And I go immediately to thinking about my work in physiotherapy because I've had postural issues and I've had a knee replacement and a number of things. And um, I think that there's an element of what goes on with neuroscience is very much like what my physiotherapist does. I think that, you know, if I work up my knee and I'm able to get my knee functioning really well, I'm able to get back on my mountain bike in a way that I couldn't have done. And I, I have been, um, but that does not mean that my knee takes me for a ride. Hmm. It means that me together with my knee, my bike, the trail, all of those things come together in a way. And the part that I hear in what goes on with um, some neuroscience discourse is what uh, a guy named Peter Hacker called the muriological fallacy, uh, 
which is the idea that somehow a brain part causes something as if, um, you know, and they, they used to use this metaphor of a brain in a vat, you know, uh, literally in a science way, as if, you know, that part of the brain could make what goes on outside the vat happen. And all of that misses the dialogic part of what it means to be in responsive relation to something. And does it help me, though, to know that if, uh, and I have a mother who's got part dementia, mm-hmm. um, does it help her to be doing crossword puzzles every day, knowing that that part of her brain is kept active and that, you know, there's also ways in which that activity crosses over into some other stuff? Absolutely, that's useful. But it isn't the er uh, discourse that Hank Stam was concerned about. Mm. Uh, and, you know, as a researcher and as somebody interested in psychotherapy, my worry is it takes us away from what Irving Goffman called where the action is. The action is in the interactions. Yeah. The action is, you know, what we're doing in our responsiveness. And the moment we start getting interested in brain parts over the interaction, we lose some of what that person's life world is about. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Okay, you've also written about, and you've kind of touched on this in some way, but written about the training of counselors and counselor education. You are interested in psychotherapy, and I'm, I'm wondering, how are we doing, and what is the future of counselor education and training? Well, I'll give you my worry, and then I'll give you my hope. How's that? Um, So there has always been within our field uh, a group of people who are systematizers who want to be able to do, um, let's say, rigid scaffolding of skill development and all of this kind of stuff that I was talking about earlier. And that evidence-based therapies map onto that, uh, that um, there are ways in which uh, learning models and learning models to the exclusion of what it might mean interaction, all of that is my worry for the field. Um, My hope for the field is that, um, and I think it happens anyways, (laughs) in part, is that even in... uh, the practica that people do, the internships, the the in-class practice, they are learning it's more than a script. Mm-hmm. They're learning that it's uh, about how they might use ideas in a way that has some fidelity to those ideas, but it doesn't mean that they're then doing like some people in cognitive behavioral therapy think like they're administering doses of something in their, in their work with people. I'm I'm worried about that medicalized approach to how um, people come to regard uh, the work that they do. I'm worried, for example, that and and it stays with the concern part for a moment. Um, one of my reasons for getting as PO'd as I did about diagnosis was um, it becomes a way again, like the the neuroscience thing we were talking about of looking away from interaction, looking Mm. away from context, thinking that all of that is irrelevant, that what we need are, you know, treatments that are nonspecific to the situations that people are concerned about, Mm. but are evidence supported. Therefore, we, you know, we can ignore their context and all that. I think that a good practitioner in, in the way that I think many people are training and learning um, is one that has a, a bunch of different ideas that they can use and very mindful of what happens in the present moment of their interactions with clients and what they're building together with them and that they learn how to become resourceful in those moments, but not in ways that get them to turn away from the relationship and what's produced in it. And I do think that there are ways in which good therapists are doing that regardless of their training. Right. <laughs> you know? I, I agree. There's a lot of rebels out there. You, you made me think of something because you did. Uh, I, I recently did a video on my YouTube channel around the power threat meaning framework. And I know you've written yeah. about that well, yeah. as well. And I'm wondering, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts about this alternative to the DSM? 
Well, uh, first of all, I really want to acknowledge the work that they did over there in Britain around this. Um, and I'd surprise, it was done by the Clinical Psychology um, Division of the British Psychological Society as a way of restoring a sense of context, meaning to what it means to be involved in doing practice. And um, it was meant intentionally as an alternative to the DSM. Um, does it need more work? Absolutely. But the idea that um, that we as uh, individuals are responding to um, situations in which we are disempowered and that we make meaning out of that and that this happens at a cultural societal level, um, I think is huge progression from where the field has been. And um, I just wish that there was a, a bit more um, development that would go with that. I think that there are people who are trying to fashion um, models and things like that out of that work. And I really hope that there's more done. Um, I, I read uh, recently somebody's um, master's, I think it was master's thesis on using the power threat meaning framework um, as a kind of step towards evidence supported therapies using it. And I would be very interested, of course, what evidence are we talking about? <laughs> but um, I'm I'm hopeful that this is a direction that people are going in. Wonderful. Okay, last question. Um, I, I like to ask this question of all my guests at the end, and it's just, uh, you know, what books, thinkers, films, etc., are capturing your attention these days? Right. Um, let me start by going to one that I really liked from a few years ago, uh -huh. and, and and it's a book that might seem unusual, but the book was by Oli Dreyer, and that's D R E I E R. And Oli Dreyer, and I'm, I'm trying to remember the title of it, he uh, did this book about 2009, um, and it was on what clients did outside of therapy as it relates to therapy. Mm. And he was very much interested in a practice theory kind of um, way of thinking. And what I got out of reading that book was just how much therapists are bucking the tide with when they try to introduce an intervention into an ecology of all these things that people are doing in, interactively all, you know, all the way through their lives. It, you know, it really was humbling in one sense, in a good way. Um, and it really got me thinking about customizing practice um, a bit. Hmm. Um, a lot of my current reading, I haven't been reading a lot of therapy books. Um, I mean, I'm interested uh, in the work that goes on around... Um, uh, well, I'm involved in one project right now that looks at open dialogue, and mm -hmm. um, and I'm very interested in open dialogue as a kind of community-based response to uh, what would be a, a threatening situation to one of the community's members, mm -hmm. and um, always thought that that approach was related to a really old approach introduced by a Native American, actually, um, uh, Atneve, Carolyn Atneve, and this was family network therapy, and that would have been done in the 70s. <laughs> and, and, and you know, uh, there were people back then, uh, working with Atneve, uh, who, you know, when you have a problem, who needs to be part of the conversation about its solution? Right. And then they would bring in all these different people. Um, I continue to like what Harleen Anderson does in that regard. I mean, I, I always thought the notion of a problem-organized system fits with what I was just saying about open dialogue and family network therapy. Um, and I like these approaches that are grounded in community-based participatory research. Um, the more therapists who are working on problems in offices are seeing the same problem, the more I think is there any way of getting my agency or my institution to respond in a bigger picture way with groups of people addressing through action research how they might want to go through things differently? 
Huh. Yeah. And um, one person I'll mention whose uh, work I really like, and I used to work with him, is Otar Ness. And oh, yeah. Otar is in Trondheim. And um, he has been looking at the question of what does it mean to co-produce services? And I think that that is a very, very interesting area to look at. How do you end up having clients on your agency's board, for example, making policy decisions about how services would be offered? How do you uh, end up engaging community members um, in ways that literally are shaping what arguably is the therapist prerogative stuff, you know, um, and, you know, how do, how do we end up making our services more communally responsive? Yeah. And, uh, Wonderful. Uh, but I mean, I, you know, in terms of reading, I've, a lot of my reading has been more in this sort of area, uh, an area that I wanted to look at more closely relates to my earlier work on the social constructionism book I did with Andy Locke is where does our subjectivity come together with our cultural experience, which arguably you call hermeneutic. Mm -hmm. And there is a whole literature that's come out that I really want to get adapting a bit is around the idea of 4E uh, phenomenology. And what they mean by that is how do we have embodied, inactive, uh, extended, and uh, what's the other one? <laughs> and embedded, that's the one. Embedded, embodied, inactive, and extended. How do we, in our ways, still retain the sense of the subjective while recognizing the way in which these other things that I was calling a social material are incorporated into um, what it is that becomes part of how we do life. Mm. And um, the way I was looking at it was more like we were talking with social material. That is what they would talk about as extended. And literally they talk about how our cognition is scaffolded mm. in a kind of social material way how our affect is uh, extended in, in ways. And I think that there's great work done by people like uh, Jan Slaby, um, S-L-A-B-Y, um, and another guy named Thomas Zanto, uh, S-Z, I guess I'm talking to an American, S-Z-A-N-T-O. Um, and... Uh, these would be people who really have, um, Thomas Fuchs would be another, these are all Europeans, but what they're doing is they're trying to bring back that sense of the subjective through phenomenology in a way that plays out in a cultural fashion. Mm -hmm. And that, it has a history that goes back to Alfred Schutz and, and Garfinkel would be kind of wrapped up in that, but I've become very interested in that literature. And I don't see people writing about it therapeutically yet, but I'm guessing there'll be some. I imagine. All right. Thank you very much, Tom, for this wide-ranging conversation. I appreciate you making the time and coming on the show. All right. Well, I, I appreciate the invitation. And, you know, if people want to check out what I do, they can go and find me on. I'm on ResearchGate, and uh, uh, they can contact me personally. So Wonderful. And you also have, uh, I'm part of your email list. So how did they get on that? Or can they find that on your website? Or uh, They can email me. Yeah. And I, I mean, if you like, I can give you my email address. And, uh, yeah, I can put it in the show notes so people can find yeah. it. Okay. okay, so... Fair enough. Okay. Um, and that would be the easiest way to do that. Perfect. Thanks, Tom. All right, Chris. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. All right. That's our show. I hope you found that as interesting and fascinating as I did. Um, and as always, please come follow The Radical Therapist on uh, well, The Radical Therapist on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Chris Hoff on Instagram. Come check me out. Uh, we're also, there's a Radical Therapist Facebook page. You might want to check that out and come, you know, just kind of hang out with me on the socials. That would be appreciated. 
And I think that's all I have for you. If you want some stickers, shoot me an email. I'll send you some Radical Therapist stickers. I keep forgetting to announce that little piece, but if you'd like some Radical Therapist stickers, just let me know. I'll send them out to you. I'd be happy to do that. And I think that's it. So as always, I'm Dr. Chris Hoff. This has been the Radical Therapist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Peace.